Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Benjamin Red, joined by Nizar Hassan. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing wonderful. We've got tons to talk about this week. Yes, we do. Uh, we're we're gonna do like a quick rundown of of what's gone on this week, and then we are going to get into pollution and uh, is it safe to swim specifically? Is because I mean the big question. Yeah, it's summer. It's hot. Everybody wants to like go have a dip in the Mediterranean. We live on the goddamn Mediterranean Sea, right? Like, it's a wonderful idea to go and swim, right? <laughs> uh, especially in weather like uh, like we're having right now. Uh, but it that may not be the smartest thing for you to do, and we're going to tell you why later on in the podcast. Uh, but first off, this past week, we, we had a lot of things go on. Uh, we had this activist, uh, Wadi al-Asmar, uh, who is the president of the Lebanese Center for Human Rights. He was also one of the co-founders of the Ustink movement. If you remember back in 2015, all the trash protests and everything. Uh, he was summoned this week uh, by the ISF. The Cyber Crimes Bureau of the ISF said, we need to talk to you about things that you've been posting online. Uh, and this sort of set off a shitstorm. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 this has been going on. This has been a continuing story, and it has intensified in the past uh, several weeks. Uh, yeah, I but... think he's the seventh activist to be summoned in the in the past two months. Right, and and you know, like it seems like they're big names. So like he he's a relatively big name that's being summoned as well, right? Yeah, he's a famous activist. Yeah. Right, right, um, and so. Uh, he announced that uh, I think on Thursday he announced uh, on Twitter that I've been summoned to like go in and explain my social media tweets or whatever to uh, the ISF, and then on Friday uh, we had this massive show of force. Right, we had eighteen NGOs, uh, like prominent NGOs, uh, come out and say, sign an open letter to uh, the UN. Uh, uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, Zaid bin Murad Hussain, and the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Opinion and Expression, David Kay, uh, calling on them to uh, uh, sort of get involved and, uh, uh, you know, denounce what they see as, you know, violations of uh, speech and opinion uh, here in Lebanon. Um, and it And it's really striking because in that open letter, you know, they they called out the ISF Cybercrimes Bureau and the military tribunal, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty mind-blowing. Uh, in in Lebanese politics, you don't go after the security services. Like, that. that's rule number one. Uh, and so I don't think, I can't think of a time uh, in recent memory where this has been as big, uh, as big of sort of like public call-out of a military institution, of multiple military institutions uh, as this. Yeah, I think this started mostly, especially the attacks against um, the military tribunal started with the protests of 2015. Not started, actually, but were intensified after the protests because they were summoning all these activists or arresting people and then prosecuting them in the military tribunal, even though they had nothing to do with like attacking officers of this or anything of the sort. Right, But because right. of the clashes with uh, riot, for, riot police, they would, yeah. they would refer them all to the military tribunal. And there's a widely held demand that this tribunal should be abolished because it was an exceptional court that was created at a specific moment and should not have been permanent and also its jurisdiction should not include prosecuting civilians at all it's just for military affairs 
So yeah, but but the opposite is happening, right? It seems yeah. as though it just keeps growing. Uh, and 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 this court, there there's just like less due process, it seems, and and less oversight. Uh, and it's it's not a civilian court, exactly. you know. It's, it's a, you know a general who's judging you, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I just want to read the 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 money quote from this open letter. We urge you to publicly and strongly condemn these violations of the rights to freedoms of opinion, expression, association, and peaceful assembly in Lebanon. Basically, they want the UN to come in and sort of shame the security institutions, which is, I don't know, my mind was blown. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it should. I mean, I don't see any other way of doing this either because what's happening is basically people are posting things on Facebook, just the status, mocking some someone like an official like Gibran Basile or the president or making a jokes about a joke about I don't know religion and then this bureau is text uh, calling them on WhatsApp or just a normal phone call and be like you are summoned to uh, to a questioning or whatever this is crazy because what you post on Facebook is not supposed to be like uh, the same as posting in a newspaper article but because we don't have the slander and defamation laws specifically for the internet. So what's happening is that this cyber crime bureau, which is supposedly about cyber crime, is doing something totally out of its jurisdiction, which is summoning people for for making jokes and saying mocking officials. But see, they don't see it that way. They say we are just implementing the defamation code that's already in the Lebanese legal code, right? And, and not only that, on top of that, they're not acting like on their own. And and this this I absolutely agree with, right? they are actually acting on judges' orders. And from what I've heard, there are just a couple of judges who recently have had a, a little bit, who've been a little bit active with their pen and signing yeah. with these kinds of warrants. Uh, and so the problem is, at least like uh, like sort of in defense of the ISF, uh, the problem isn't as much with the Cyber Crimes Bureau as with whoever's signing these warrants that they're carrying out because if you're if you're a member of the ISF and you get a warrant a legal warrant from a judge to call somebody in for questioning you're going to do what's in that warrant you don't have a choice but the thing that happens for example with Sharb al-Khuri who was summoned because he because he made the joke about uh, Marshal Bil a religious figure and uh, yeah very popular among Lebanese Christians so he made a joke about that and then he was summoned and they told him you have to act deactivate your Facebook account for a month don't tell me this is normal or healthy judicial procedure. This is completely like spontaneous and unhealthy, you know. But I mean, as far as that goes as well, I, I believe that's acting on judges' orders. Which is, which it's a problem. We can say it's, it's, a we it's a huge problem, problem. But, but I do think, uh, you know, that, okay, yes, there are a lot of issues with the military tribunal. There are a lot of issues with the ISF Cyber Crimes Bureau. But... We can't just put all the blame on them. We have to look at uh, the, you know, the judges and ultimately at the penal code itself. You know, maybe it's time for Parliament to step in and amend the penal code. Exactly. And, you know, do its job, right? Yeah, exactly. And def- define what is slander and defamation on social media, on your personal account, and among other things. Right, right. Uh, also, just a quick note. Hajj uh, begins Sunday night, so by the mm-hmm. time you you listen to this, uh, Hajj will have begun, and also that means Eid al-Adha is next week. Uh, it's, I believe, three days this year here in Lebanon. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. 
So I've, I've actually heard stories of like some people just shutting up shop for the entire week because might as well, you know, give everybody uh, an entire week off. Unfortunately, my uh, my bosses have not done that. So <laughs> I'll be at work Monday and Friday and 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 uh, probably Sunday as well. <laughs> I, I wanted to also note that uh, this is something we're going to see over the next week. We, we have the Unifil mandate expiring at the end of August. Uh, and this is, this is a thing that happens every year at the end of August. Um, and so every year you you see this sort of like Lebanese government requests that they renew this and then the Security Council will vote and renew it. Last year, it became sort of a big deal because Nikki Haley, the, uh, the U.S. representative at the U.N., very hawkish, uh, she uh, came out against Unifil and wanted things changed. She um, lobbed like personal insults at the commander of Unifil uh, and and so this year, uh, I don't know if there will be fireworks or not, uh, uh, but this is a process that you'll be seeing in the news uh, over the next week. Uh, and if there is anything interesting, of course, we'll talk about it next week. The, what about uh, cabinet formation? You haven't told us anything about it yet. Oh, did, did anything happen this week? I don't know. <laughs> you, you keep the count. It's, it's it. It has been it has been eighty eight days uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, as of as of Monday. Eighty eight days uh, since Hurry was designated, and we're actually we're moving into the time that I uh, I'm a little bit optimistic about actually. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the week, we will hit the three month mark since Hurry was designated, and I've always thought like three four months some somewhere in that time frame is a good time to form a government. Because we go back to uh, past practice in 2009, it took uh, Hariri about four and a half months. Same in 2011, it took Mikati about uh, four and a half months. And so from here out the next month and a half or so, I think it's sort of like the golden period for forming a government. And we also have, uh, like right now it's August, there's tons of people who are just like off on vacation on holiday. But they'll be coming back in September, and in September we have things like the school year starting up, administrative things start to kick off again, and that's really when having a government is a good thing to have. So it seems as though, okay, if we want to keep with this precedent that was established by Hariri in 2009 and Makati in 2011, and if we want to have a government when all of these uh, administrative things start kicking in, then this is a good time to like get down to work and finally, you know, make those hard calls, you know, do the negotiations, make, you know, get whatever deal you can and halas. That's it. That being said, though, this week we had a new obstacle show up and that's Syria, right? So there was a suggestion that cabinet formation should be predicated maybe on normalizing relations with Syria. And Hariri just absolutely shut that down, which I, I think that makes sense. Like if you're Hariri, you want normalization with Syria to happen on your terms. Right. Of course. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily I don't think that Hariri is like fundamentally against normalizing ties with Syria because there are so many interests that Lebanon shares with Syria. Uh, and also, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has already signaled that uh, it would be accepting uh, Bashar al-Assad at some point in the future. Uh, so, you know, it, it makes sense that this will happen. But Haru is just sort of saying, like, not yet, guys. We're, we're not we're not at that point where I'm ready to, you know, sign on the dotted line and, you know, visit uh, Damascus and say hello to Bashar al-Assad. Uh, speaking of, like, foreign countries, 
we also have Russia seemingly getting involved in this process as well this week, which I, th- I think is really interesting. So I think like a, a, a couple, two or three weeks ago, uh, Timur Jumblat uh, visited Moscow. Uh, and then this week we had Talal Erslan, mm-hmm. Jumblat's rival, right? Uh, also visit Moscow. We had a, uh, an advisor for Haruri visiting Moscow. And this week we are going to have uh, Gibran Basil, the foreign minister, will be visiting Moscow. So we're not entirely sure what all they're talking about, but uh, it seems to me as though maybe Russia is involved in some discussions about this, right? Yeah, but it's surprising to me that Jumblat and Erslan would visit Moscow if it's about the government. Like, Moscow is involved in which Drew's cabinet seat go- goes to whom? That's quite surprising. That's impressive. That's, uh, it, That's it's getting down in the weeds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I have a theory, right, that this whole debate about cabinet isn't so much about seat allocation. Um, By that you mean like number of seats? Yeah, the number of okay. seats. I, I don't, I don't like everybody talks about this, right? That, mm. Oh, how many, how many seats is the LF going to get compared to the FPM? And, and is Willie Jumblatt going to get three or two seats? Uh, you know, that I don't think is really the negotiation, the real negotiation happening mm-hmm. right now. I think that uh, instead of that, the real negotiation is happening over which specific ministries people get. Okay. Okay. So we know, because if you look at the numbers, everything sort of like breaks down in, in like we know the the rough numbers, right? Okay, Jumblat's going to get either two or three. Uh, the FPM is going to get nine or ten, most likely, right? Uh, and so the range for negotiations over these, these numbers isn't great. And it also doesn't necessarily have, uh, I don't think, uh, great significance for what people can do uh, in the next government. There's no way that Basile is going to get a blocking third yeah. in the cabinet. Other people will not allow that to happen, right? And so, okay, he gets either nine or 10. Does it really matter if he gets nine or 10? Is that one seat going to make a huge difference? It's better to have one seat, one more seat, but it, I don't. I don't think it's some grand thing. Much more important is what is that seat? Which mm-hmm. portfolios are you going to control? Which budgets are you going to control? And and so with this, we 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 talked about sovereign ministries before. These are set. I I don't think that there's really any uh, any way that that these things change. Navi Berri has been very clear. He is not giving out the finance ministry. I, I think that the FPM uh, it isn't going to budge either on their uh, two sovereign ministries. And, and of course, the future will not give up. They, they have to have a sovereign ministry. Mm. Um, and so I think those are, are really hard to change, even though the LF keeps saying, we want a sovereign ministry, we want a sovereign ministry. Uh, but I think that the LF would settle for not having a sovereign ministry if they got, I don't know, telecommunications or something like another ministry one of the uh, one of those sort of second tier ministries. So if you if you got the four sovereign ministries in Lebanon, then you've got like the second tier of about eight ministries, mm-hmm. right? That are service oriented, uh, or you know things like, like public works uh, and transportation controls. All of these interesting facets uh, of Lebanon uh, and of the Lebanese bureaucracy and a lot of contracts and everything is a very powerful position to have. Yeah. Right. And so I think really where the negotiations are happening is in the second tier. So yeah, I don't have any direct evidence of this, uh, but it makes sense to me. It, it makes logical sense. And also like you, you just see these things in the media that supposedly, you know, 
uh, Merida really, really wants to hold on to the public works ministry, that Hezbollah really, really wants a service ministry. Or the planning ministry, which Hezbollah is trying to reactivate. Right, right. So these things, it seems to me as though the discussion about the number of seats is really just like an impoverished discussion of what's really going on behind the scenes and mm. the, I guess, the intricacy of the negotiations that must be taking place right now. Definitely. And I think from my understanding of the Lebanese system, this makes total sense because, yes, you can, it's nice to have the foreign and defense ministries. It's a lot of prestige. It's uh, internationally recognized as a main player in Lebanon and all of that. But when you have a service ministry, you're providing services to people and to people that you want to provide services to more than others, more easily. Right, right. This is how they give back to people who have voted for them uh, or who have funded their political campaigns. Yeah, this, this is the real allies. Lebanese system. Yeah, yeah this is how right. it works. So you need service ministries and you need ministries that have big contracts to give. So yeah. not the environment ministry for sure. We'll talk about that <laughs> later. And not any ministry that has a tiny little budget. You need ministries that provide real services, health, education, or contracts. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but speaking of the environment ministry, uh, the the big question right now is, is, is it safe to swim in the sea, right? This is the big question, indeed. So, so like, all of this kicked off, uh, like, I don't know, like a month, month and a half ago, with this, uh, like, media reports about this report that came from the Lebanese Agricultural Re- uh, Research Institute, which is a government, like, research body. And what they had done is they tested the waters, like, in 2016 and 2017, and they came out and said, like, everything, everything is polluted. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's not safe to swim anywhere. That's what they said, right? That's yeah, contaminated. Yeah, the 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 director general uh, of the institute, uh, a man by the name of Michel Afrem, he he said, uh, he, I think he he said this in in remarks to uh, my colleague Victoria Yan at the Daily Star. Quote, in 2016, we ran tests across the country in different areas along the coast. The results were bad. In 2017, we ran the same tests along the entire coast, and everything came back dangerously contaminated. The sea along Lebanon's coast is extremely polluted. This is nothing new, but it is surely getting worse. <laughs> yeah, this was the... <laughs> this is a damning quote, right? <laughs> and, and so, like, th- this really was a media sensation. Uh, got lots and lots of coverage, uh, and people started asking, well, is it safe, right? Yeah, but then you had this other major report by the National Center for Scientific Research, uh, which said... Another state body. Another right, state yeah. body. It's the main... Sp- state body for scientific research and it has inside it the marine studies unit which is um, a center that is specifically responsible for testing water across lebanon's beaches and coasts and say whether the water is polluted or not this is its official responsibility so this report was kind of an answer to that report and a lot of um, media about it was specifically about this jurisdiction thing saying you can't trust a report that does not come out of this institution specifically uh, yeah, and this is right. interesting because of its content, right? Because this report said that the situation is something completely different than what the other report said. Uh, it has, first of all, it has twenty-five stations, uh, twenty-five permanent stations from which they take samples every month, and they did this study. They collected data from two thousand sixteen till uh, two thousand eighteen, so two years and a half. And the results are that out of these twenty-five spots uh, on Lebanon's coast, coast only. Five of them are unsafe for swimming. So the vast majority is actually safe, with some of them falling in the good uh, range and others in the medium range. 
And the five spots that are unsafe for swimming are Tripoli's public beach and Beirut's public beach, Ramlet al-Baida, and the new lighthouse area on Beirut's Manara, the, near the Corniche, and an area in Batroun near the Salata chemicals um, factory, and an area in Antilias where the Antilias River ends. So the report says only these five spots are unsafe for swimming. And this is according to uh, the methodology that is that follows uh, WHO standards and is um, based on the colonies of bacteria measurements. So they measure how, how many colonies of bacteria there are in a specific spot. And the bacteria that they measure are fecal streptococci and fecal coliforms. So these are the two type of bacteria for people who are interested in these technical aspects. Um, these I mean, are the I, I know the word fecal. I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, we know that, that but that means it doesn't, <laughs> not not doesn't sound not nice. <laughs> <laughs> so in Beirut, for example, um, you had this report saying that two of the three spots, uh, spots studied are very bad. They are unsafe for swimming. Um, but one one other spot is safe for swimming. It, it's, it's weird, though, because like two of these locations, the Minara location and uh, the, the harbor, are really close to each other. They're like a stone's throw away. So why is like why do you have such vastly different results for these two different locations? Yeah, my guess would be that uh, it depends on how close you are to a sewage outlet because this is a study of fecal matters, right? Right. So uh, your proximity to a uh, sewage outlet is very important uh, for the results. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that potentially explains one thing, but then why fundamentally was there this huge difference between these two reports as well? I don't understand that. Me neither, to be honest. And it, it, and as well, like, we, we should note that there was, like, different methodologies used, you know, different, uh, like, it, they're all very smart people who did these reports, but, like, two very different reports. Yeah, but it's important to note that for CNRS, so for um, the more positive study, it's based only on 25 locations, right? 25 stations taking the sample. So it's not, it doesn't really cover all of the Lebanese coasts. And uh, what the head of the institution said in the press, co- press conference launching the report is that actually they wish they had more funds to do a wider study, a more comprehensive one. And he said, more importantly, he said that they did not take any samples from inside from inside beach resorts, for example. So all the beaches mentioned were public beaches. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Although all beaches in Lebanon are public, supposedly, but we know that most 80% of the coast is privatized, so most of it is just managed by private resorts. And this is important because this matters most for consumers, right? For people just going to swim. Most of us just go to private resorts. And this means that if the state is not sure whether it's clean, it's safe to swim in these resorts, then we don't have any source of data to confirm. Because if you're in Beirut, what are your options? You cannot go to Ramlet al-Baida. It's super polluted. Yeah. According to this positive report, it's just unsafe to swim there. So there's no other way to swim in Beirut but to go to a private resort. Yeah, yeah. So you better have some money. Yeah. Exactly. And if you, even if you have the, the money, you don't have the information whether the water is contaminated or not. So yeah. we, cannot be, um, we cannot tell our listeners that it's safe to swim anywhere because this study is only concerned with public beaches. Right, right. So, I mean, it's, it seems as though maybe take all of these results with, like, the caution that you should and yeah. maybe don't <laughs> swim, right? <laughs> Uh, it, it, I think it's interesting, though, as well, just how this has captured public attention. So we talked a little bit about how the Larry Report really kicked off 
uh, a lot of media coverage and everything. But also you just see on social media, you know, like we, we had these results, um, supposed results from AUB Beach, which is very close to the Minara uh, and the uh, and the other site as well. These results supposedly saying like one of them said, oh, it's clean. The other one said, oh, it's dirty. Um, and these just spread like wildfire uh, on the Internet. They're really showing that people are genuinely interested in just how polluted uh, their their beach uh, their beaches and their coast and and the water is, which also plays into like so there's that psychological effect right, but then there's also a real world effect as well. So we we, we have reports that you know businesses along the coast uh, have been seeing fewer customers like you know and of course that that is impacting their bottom lines, uh, which is not great because this is the time that these businesses make money. They yeah. don't make money in the middle of winter. They make money in the summer. And so if they're seeing like a steep decline, uh, like, uh, again, uh, Victoria Yan of the Daily Star, uh, who's been a, on an absolute tear about this subject lately, uh, she went and interviewed people down in uh, Sur, you know, in the public beach down there. And I think they said something like uh, they're like one of the one of the owners of one of the huts on the, on the beach said that they're. Uh, that their business was down like 80% or something. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we see this uh, on a business level. And then there's also been uh, these sort of unconfirmed reports swirling around about people having to go to the doctor for weird rashes and like infections and stuff like that, that may have been caused by like swimming in the sea. Yeah. Right. A lot of those pictures going by. So I, since we're the Lebanese politics podcast, uh, <laughs> We we shouldn't just talk about swimming and whether or not you should or not. We should talk about, like, why does this problem happen? Or, like, why does this exist? And, and like, what are the solutions to it, right? Uh, from, like, a policy standpoint. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, we, we've got solid waste. We, we've got, like, landfills right on the sea. We like to build landfills on the sea for some reason. Um, so, like, here in Beirut, we've got the Costa Brava, we've got Burshamud. Um, the, the trash mountain in Tripoli is threatening to like collapse into the sea. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's definitely the solid waste angle there, but there's also like you mentioned wastewater, right? Of course. Yeah. The problem with dumping sewage in the sea without any treatment or with very basic treatment is also a big source of uh, pollution specifically for beaches where people swim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then also we just have like the assholes right, who, <laughs> who litter and pollute and you yeah know, people who just... <laughs> own businesses or even individuals who just throw their garbage or their chemicals in the sea are a big problem. But I think it's it's uh, important to look at like the legal framework of this. You know to to know not only the sources of pollution but also who's responsible for making sure it's not the case in the first place, right? Because right, right. This is a problem in Lebanon that we we rarely point fingers at a specific institution. Yeah. We're always like this whole system, sucks, yeah. which is true, but still. Case of the environment, it's an interesting maze that we have. So we have this environment protection law that is good. It has good standards. It was passed in two thousand two, called Law four four four, and it's meant to be like uh, the legal framework for protecting the environment as a whole. Article twenty nine in this law says that the environment ministry is responsible. So we have the main responsibility falling in the hands of the Environment Ministry to protect the beaches from pollution, but also in coordination with Public Works Ministry and other specialized institutions. 
And this specialized institutions thing uh, is meant to um, point at institutions that have specific roles and specific projects to give, for example, permits um, or to do certain inspections. So, for example, if you are plan you're planning to build a beach resort, you need to do an environmental impact assessment. So when you do that, you have to uh, submit it in the file that you submit to the Directorate Generate of Urban Planning, which would give you uh, the permit to build. So the Directorate Generate of Urban Planning is one of these specialized institutions who have a partial responsibility in protecting the environment indirectly by requiring certain documents, for example. And also, maybe more importantly for the specific topic of sea pollution is the Barcelona Convention, which is a United Nations treaty called originally the Convention for the Protection of the Mediterranean Sea Against Pollution. And then they amended it and gave it a much more technical but also boring title, which I'm not going to read. And <laughs> Barcelona just sounds easier. The Barcelona yeah, the Barcelona yeah, Convention uh, is great. <laughs> nobody's going to remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and basically, it's a good thing because this convention is good. At the same time, in Lebanon, uh, international conventions are above local laws. So... When you have an international, when you sign, ratify an international convention as a state, uh, it has the higher legal value, higher than your local laws. It becomes the legal priority and the ultimate uh, reference. Yeah. Okay. So then they have to modify local laws to meet this, uh, the standards of the international convention. But the problem is that Lebanon has not ratified all the protocols, which are the documents that specify certain commitments of this convention. So we have three protocols that have not been ratified. And then the rest of the protocols have had amendments over the years because this goes back to the 70s. So 20 years later, they had many amendments. But these amendments required the states to actually abide by them and change certain things. So Lebanon has not been doing that. It's not following up on its commitments. And another issue is that laws in Lebanon are not specific enough to meet the requirement of the convention or even um, what its environment protection law says, states. So what we need is, in terms of legal reform, is a lot of implementation decrees, or called, often called application decrees, where basically the government specifies which state institution is re responsible for implementing which side of a specific law, which aspect of a specific law. Right, and this is a common thing. Uh, exactly. Like for basically any law that passes, you, you can't just say in Lebanon, oh, the law passed and celebrate. No, we, we've got a ton of laws on the books that are not being implemented because these decrees have not gone through cabinet yet. Definitely. And this specific case, we have 36 decrees that are required by the Lebanese um, 444 law, right? The one passed The overarching uh, law from 2012 or 2002, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the four major decrees for its implementation were only passed 10 years after the law was passed. So for 10 years, we had literally nothing. So what this means is that we still need to implement a lot of application decrees for the law in order to be actually um, implementing it effectively. Yeah, so like right now, it's like partway in force, sort exactly. of. Okay. And also, it's a big problem because apart from the legal issues, practically, the Environment Ministry has not been doing a great job in this so first of all, we have not had environment ministers that are very excited to be, you know, determined to be like activating this ministry and cracking down on violations. We have not seen a lot of attention to this ministry at all. But more importantly, because the ministry has been receiving ridiculously low state funding. So the numbers 
from 2017-2018 is 0.04 and 0.06 of the budget, but it's exactly the same number because the budget decreased a bit. It's $9.3 million for a whole year. Yeah, yeah. And and this is like the, the environment ministry. It, it's like we were talking about the tiers of ministries, right? So you've got the top tier that's the like four sovereign ministries. Then you've got like like tier two, which is, you know, like big budget ministries uh, and really important ministries. And then you've got like this bottom tier of ministries. The environment ministry is one of those bottom tier ministries. Yeah, it's literally like, a, depending on how you, you count it, it's, it's like the third or fourth cheapest ministry in the budget. Yeah. yeah. And it's a shame because we have all of these problems and what this lack of state funding means is that we don't have the human resources uh, required for environment ministry to do the necessary inspection to make sure that these projects and uh, cities in Lebanon are abiding by environmental regulations to make sure that the laws are implemented. Specifically, uh, in the case of staff, we have a 50% shortage according to a World Bank report. So we have 50% less, fewer technical staff than we need to be doing the proper inspections. And can I just note here, this is this is not unique to the environment ministry. This is across basically the entire bureaucracy. We see uh, underfunding. We see staff positions that just aren't filled. We see staff positions as well that are filled by people who uh, shouldn't be filling them, uh, yeah. who are not competent or do not have like the requisite uh, uh, qualifications to be filling them. So this is not just... Uh, yeah, things are bad at the environment ministry, but this is this goes for basically every other state institution as well. Definitely. This is the major challenge or the major scandal of Lebanese institutions, right? Yeah. And this has like many, many kind of bad impacts. One of them is that because you don't have the human resources, then you would outsource a lot of the work to private companies. You don't have the technical experts. You need private experts. You outsource it. And then first, you don't build the knowledge inside the institution. But second, you pay higher salaries than you would to your own staff. This is one of the problems. And it also intersects with like political favors, uh, business favors but from politicians and all the po- of the possible cronyism and corruption that might happen there. But another issue, the more practical one, is that, you know, the major way in which the environment ministry inspects or monitors the environmental situation is through environmental impact assessment. So any project that is large enough to form a threat to the environment has to do this environmental impact assessment and all projects on the sea on the sea coast have to do that. So but the problem is that private companies um, have the freedom of choosing their own consultants, their own environmental consultants to do the studies. Right. This that sounds is like not, that should not be the case. Yeah, but this is yeah. not, system is not uh, unique to Lebanon. It's just, you know, it's just a market solution to like giving less and less responsibilities to the state uh, institutions. You know, right. instead of the state having to inspect everything and do the environmental regulations for every project, the project developers themselves contract an environmental consultant. The environmental consultant uh, does the impa- impact study, the environmental impact assessment, and uh, they have and they submit this assessment to the ministry. But then the ministry has to inspect during the study and after the study during the development of the project, whether the developers are keeping their words, right? Whether they are making good on their environmental promises or commitments. Okay, yeah. But this cannot happen if the ministry does not have the required human resources again. So this is how having ridiculously low state funding means not being able to inspect a lot of projects 
and means a lot of developed business people having the freedom of polluting the environment much more than they they should. So the only like mechanism of accountability that we have, like direct mechanism of accountability, is that uh, these projects have to have public hearings, which are kind of like to- town hall meetings where developers um, get the environmental consultants to explain to people how this project will respect the environment and then people can raise concerns and objections. But this is really not enough unless you have the ministry following up on the actual um, ground inspection of everything. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and another issue, a uh, practical issue, is um, the that some of the aspects of the law, for example, like the National Council for the Environment, which was only established in 2012, 10 years after the law was passed in one of the decrees that we mentioned, only has an advisory role. So we have, for example, a civil society representative on this, ro- on this council, but the council is barely active. It only meets once every few months and it's not very active. So this is another institution that's kind of like dormant. And then coming back to the main source of pollution for uh, our topic, sea pollution, right? The main source of pollution being uh, fecal matters coming from uh, wastewater, the dumping of sewage. We see here another issue, which is that the state has not been implementing the necessary projects to um, purify and recycle the water, the wastewater, before dumping it in the sea. So, for example, in Beirut, we have the famous uh, Ghadir refinery, a station that receives wastewater, treats it before it goes to... uh, being dumped in the sea, um, it's not technologically sophisticated enough to do the purification as per the standards of this environment ministry itself. So, uh, for example, we have the primary kind of treatment whereby it's basic filtration and settling of the wastewater and we have secondary treatment which is more sophisticated and meets the health standards. But our refineries are too weak and we have too few refineries in the first place to be uh, treating wastewater, which is the main source of pollution. So, so, so like, in real little Baida, there is a wastewater river, right? That just, like, flows literally on the beach and it yeah. goes out to the sea, r- right next to the, the new development, the Ashwater development uh, that we spoke about uh, a few episodes ago. And and I, I used to kind of have a soft spot for this river because before Ashur came in and built that development... Uh, it actually, there was this double waterfall, waste waterfall, <laughs> double waste waterfall that then went out onto the beach and into the sea. And it was like, if you like didn't breathe, it was like kind of beautiful, you know? <laughs> but, but, um, so the thing that like confused me a little bit, and I'm glad that you explained this like primary and secondary treatment thing to me. Is that like we know in Beirut there's like one sewage network, right? So everything goes down the same hole, down the same pipes, to the same places, right? But if you went to this double waterfall, and today if you go to the waterfallless uh, river that's still there flowing into the sea uh, of wastewater, it doesn't smell like shit. It literally just smells like cleaning products, you know? And so I thought I was confused, and I thought, well, Maybe it is. Maybe it is fine. You know, I mean, it's obviously not good that cleaning chemicals get dumped into the sea or anything. But now I know, no, there is fecal matter in there as well. Yeah, you just don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this all just brings it back to the original question, though. Is it safe to swim? We can't say so, right? Otherwise, we might be like 
committing, you know, health crimes. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to be responsible for somebody else getting sick. Um, yeah, I, I think the the answer is like, no, it's probably not safe to swim, and it probably isn't going to get better anytime soon either, right? Yeah. There, unless there isn't. Have, yeah. Unless we have a major change in policy, um, there's no way this is going to improve. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're still dumping garbage in this coastal landfills. They're still dumping the sewage without with basic treatment only. So we need real policies. We need real investments and alternate solutions. And this is not happening. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, of course, join us next week. We'll be back with another podcast. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil. <laughs>